Okay, well, uh, a very good afternoon or good morning, depending on or evening, actually, depending on where you are in the world. As we do these events live uh, these days, uh, it's much easier to have an audience from uh, all around the world. So welcome, everybody. Uh, my name's Tony Travers. Uh, I'm a professor in the Department of Government at the LSE. This is the Department of Government LSE event. Um, and... Uh, what we want to do with this event is really to help make a contribution to uh, what is a highly contemporary debate about the role of the prime minister within uh, British politics. Of course, that has implications uh, for a number of other countries that have adopted what's still referred to as the Westminster model, I think it's fair to say. But this is a book about the evolution of the office uh, within the United Kingdom. Um, uh, there are the usual opportunities to tweet about the event, should you so desire. Um, and our speaker today, we are enormously pleased to welcome back uh, to the LSE. Uh, uh, he's been, uh, he's taken part in events and indeed been an LSE person for many years, is Sir Anthony Selden. Um, and I think it's fair to say that Anthony is a, if not the leading contemporary political historian uh, in the United Kingdom, who's uh, been responsible for a series of books in recent years, some of which I have been um, honoured to uh, contribute to in, in, in part, at least tiny parts. Um, and what we're going to do after I've said a couple more words to introduce the book is uh, hear from Anthony for about 30 minutes, uh, after which there'll be an opportunity for me to ask a question and for you to ask questions via the uh, chat function. I thought it was a Q&A function, I suspect, actually. So feel free to put in questions or comments from the beginning. Um, now, the book uh, is entitled... The Impossible Office, here is a copy, uh, The Impossible Office, The History of the British Prime Minister. As you can see in the uh, chat function, it's possible to buy a copy from a, a bookshop linked to the LSE. Um, and it's hard to think of a better time, given uh, contemporary politics, to be discussing a book with such a title. Now, I don't want to steal any of Anthony's thunders, but suffice to say, uh, the book is a uh, bravura consideration of the origins, the remarkable organic origins, as so much of the British constitutional setup, the organic way in which the power of the monarch and the power of a first minister gradually overlapped, shifting, seesawing backwards and forwards, but eventually leading to the setup we have today. I think it's fair to say that the book considers a number of things we see from time to time today, uh, talks about the chaos from time to time at the heart of uh, government, also about the constraints on the, on the office, the skills needed to be prime minister, uh, a, a, an old favourite of mine, the underpowered nature of the lack of a prime minister's office. We don't really have a prime minister's office, though lots of prime ministers have made attempts at such things. Um, there are some one or two moments that made me uh, laugh out loud. I will only quote one of them. Um, uh, and I will just quote this, but this is about uh, comparing the relationship between our current queen, Queen Elizabeth, and Victoria. It says Elizabeth, like Victoria, began with a prime minister who was like a grandfather to her, Churchill and Melbourne for Victoria. Uh, Victoria finished with a prime minister akin to a knowing younger sibling, Salisbury. 
Elizabeth's prime minister is much like an errant grandson. Um, uh, made me smile to the point of laughing when I read that, so I enjoyed that. Anyway, uh, much more to enjoy in this book, which is an absolute cornucopia of fascinating history and facts. So I'll say no more, uh, apart from the fact it has a very bleak final paragraph. Despite all I've just said, uh, I thought the final paragraph was, was rather a bleak one, uh, but I'll leave Anthony to comment on that. So with no more ado, um, I'd like to hand over to uh, Prof uh, Dr. Anthony Selden, Sir Anthony Selden, to talk about his book, The Impossible Office, The History of the British Prime Minister. Anthony, over to you. Thanks, Tony, very much indeed. Fantastic to be doing this. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, I am an LSE person through and through, as Tony said. My father was LSE, I was LSE, my son was uh, LSE. I grew up in the politics department. John Barnes, George, the great George Jones, great John Barnes, great Tony Travers, uh, huge figures in my life. Uh, Richard Layard now, uh, the economist with whom I started Action for Happiness more and more. And thanks also to Kirsty and Matt for making today possible. Right. Um, now, um, uh, the impossible office. Is it indeed impossible? I also talk about this in a BBC Radio 4 series, which is re-airing on starting on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of next week. Uh, is it impossible or is it just the ineptitude of the office holders? Has it indeed become uh, presidential? When I was at LSE, uh, in the 70s, the big question was about the prime minister becoming presidential and now all over with Allegra Stratton uh, becoming that, but she's not anymore, uh, the, 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 the PM's uh, spokeswoman, bigger and bigger number 10, Thatcher presidential, Blair presidential, Cameron presidential, Boris Johnson presidential. It's all bunk. It's all all bunk it's all nonsense uh, I, I, and uh, so let, let's get let's get into this story I, I think that you know why did it happen why was I never taught I mean LSE taught me everything but why was I never taught at where I was before LSE and afterwards and at school about the origin and, and in many ways um, I mean we could go all the way back to chief ministers uh, back to Godwin before uh, 1066 back to the 10th century but picking up here in the Tudor period, better known, uh, Wolsey and Cromwell were in many ways uh, prime ministers um, overseeing uh, government, but with a big but, that they owed their power, as they found out to their own cost, exclusively to the monarchy, not to parliament. And that was the big factor about the PM. And the same with William and son, Robert Cecil, to Elizabeth I. Many of the, the same characteristics and powers, opportunities of the uh, Prime Minister, coordinating government, coordinating foreign policy, keeping the country safe, sorting out uh, the revenue, um, but again, wholly dependent on the monarch, Elizabeth I. And then 17th century changing everything, the uh, English uh, Civil War resulting in the execution uh, at the end of January 1649 of uh, Charles I, a moment, uh, a, a major moment, tipping power towards Oliver Cromwell, the uh, one of only two people, the other, his son, Richard, who was both uh, head of state and head of government at the same time in Britain. 
Um, and when the monarchy was restored, so 1649 saw the power of the monarchy being chipped away, 1660, uh, the restoration, a, 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 a weaker monarchy, and again, a much weaker monarchy from 1688, 1689, the Glorious Revolution, Parliament meeting every seven, three years initially, then every seven years, uh, taking uh, powers to itself. And uh, the, the new Hanoverian from 1714, George I, recognising that he needed his own figure in Parliament to coordinate um, uh, his wishes to ensure that he had his own votes of, uh, 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 for his own finances, the royal finances, and uh, to get his own business through and alighted uh, at the beginning of this month. 300 years ago on Robert Walpole as his first uh, minister. Uh, and the question very much um, uh, in that book is, is looking at this incredible similarities, so alike in temperament uh, and in um, uh, opportunity. They were both chances, both larger than life, rambustious uh, 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 figures, both loved um, uh, power, loved um, the trappings of power. Both came to office um, after a chance major hiccup in the British system, the South Sea bubble and uh, Brexit, respectively. Both nearly died in their first year in office. Both had major challenges from Scotland. Both uh, had to face epidemics. Both uh, lived in uh, number 10 with uh, a woman 25 years there, younger, and on we can go. Um, uh, uh, and it was the similarities, uh, but with a key difference coming up. I mean, what were they doing? They were leaders of the national finance. And so the assumption, if we take the presidential model uh, seriously, uh, as do so many academics um, uh, and, and part of so many syllabuses, uh, is you would expect that a diminished figure of Walpole climbing up to the grandeur uh, uh, of uh, of the late 20th century, early 21st century prime ministers, leaders of national finance. Well, who was chance? Who was uh, Walpole, Chancellor of the Exchequer? Who ran the Treasury? Walpole was Chancellor of the Exchequer, and Walpole ran the Treasury immensely more power. The Treasury is the biggest single challenge to the uh, prime minister today, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the biggest single political challenge, again and again and again. The Chancellor has undone the Prime Minister. Leaders of Parliament. Well, who was the leader of the House uh, under Walpole? Walpole was leader of the House, leader of the government. Walpole, immense powers over government. Walpole oversaw uh, elections in his own favour. Walpole, um, until the um, the last few months, but particularly from 1730 and then until his last few months, oversaw foreign policy until it tipped against him, and then he fell in 1742. Huge patronage powers that Walpole had that Johnson could only dream on. So there's been no journey to a presidential prime minister. It's nonsense. It isn't true, uh, because we have this bifurcation uh, in Britain and indeed elsewhere of political science and political history, and they don't like talking to each other very much. Um, so, I mean, how's what's happened since 1721? What well, cabinet? There was the King's Council the force of cabinets emerged. So many changes, political parties emerging uh, in the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. Central government in North taking over many of the powers from local government that was so dominant. The empire coming and falling. Ireland coming in. 
1801 and disappearing uh, in 1921, the European Union coming and going. Extraordinary uh, change at the monarchy was significant uh, for Walpole, um, but Walpole was still in many ways a much more prominent national figure in national consciousness than George I, a not insignificant challenge for Walpole today, managing the media, a massive challenge for uh, uh, for, for, for Walpole with so many continuity managing Scotland, uh, which had invaded in 1715 and uh, invaded again in 1745 in Wales, managing uh, safety from an uh, invasion in Europe and managing epidemics, managing to survive challengers, constant threat. So how can we explain then the survival of the office in the face of all these uh, changes, but continuities as well? Well, now, Walpole um, uh, got around um, in uh, that kind of, of, of um, uh, just look at Walpole there, can't see him, uh, to Boris Johnson. Just look at that, to that. 1721, April um, 2021. Uh, that, that is actually an earlier picture of Johnson. And the technology changes. Well, Walpole, his, he um, travelled at the speed of foot, uh, and his messages travelled at the speed of hoof. Uh, Wellington uh, famously walked up, uh, uh, rode up into Downing Street when he became Prime Minister for the first time in 1828 on Copenhagen, his horse from Waterloo. Peel, uh, the first PM to use railways significantly. Massive change. I mean, Walpole never went outside, never visited Bristol or, uh, or Birmingham or Manchester, let alone uh, uh, Cardiff or, 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 or Dublin or Belfast or, 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 or Scotland. Um, uh, and uh, it changed everything, the nature of the railway. Uh, telegram, Gladstone learnt about being Prime Minister uh, by telegram, and he went back to chopping trees, thank you very much. Uh, underwater cables meant that now that messages could be got back, unlike in the Crimean War, the Boer War, messages could be got back from the front. And the beginning of the sense about the Prime Minister taking over as an active war leader rather than an, a passive war leader. Telephones coming into Downing Street, enormously changing as well as the archives. Uh, Disraeli, the first PM to travel abroad uh, as PM um, up to Berlin uh, for the Congress. Uh, electricity coming into number 10 meant the PMs could work longer in winter uh, with electric light. Uh, 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 the first motor car meant PM could travel with far greater ability. Chamberlain, first PM when he went to see, famously went to see Hitler. Churchill, the last liner, the last PM to travel uh, to the US by liner, taking four to five days, uh, was Churchill. Macmillan, the first jet on a comet. Um, um, and then the first um, to use in the US, um, the helicopter. Major, the first computer MP. Uh, Blair, who didn't use mobiles himself so much, um, though he did use them, uh, the first mobile premiership. I mean, mobiles were prevalent, again, having a huge impact on, on record keeping. Cameron, the first social media. So enormous changes. Now, um, how did the office uh, then survive? It survived because of the 55 prime ministers, 53 men, two women. Um, there were nine iconic um, uh, agenda uh, changing, history-changing prime ministers whose successors either tried to be like or unlike, uh, but none could escape 
uh, their shadow. Uh, they were the figures who changed uh, the substance of the office and the country. Um, and uh, Warpole, uh, still the longest serving, uh, Pitt, who consolidated him after uh, Warpole stood down in 1842, there were 41 years in which there were 12 successive prime ministers. The office might have disappeared, but for Pitt with that very long period, uh, 23 years with the break uh, in office, 19 years altogether. Uh, Appeal, um, uh, the, the third iconic landmark prime minister shaping the office, giving up very significantly, um, giving up uh, the treasury uh, himself, um, although he carried on uh, introducing the budgets and and, uh, taking over having many of the responsibilities of the chancellorship. But now we see the chancellorship, that long journey taking over from the foreign secretary as the second most powerful figure in cabinet and government after the PM. Palmerston the, uh, are the first PM to be uh, very well known himself uh, as a figure um, throughout the country using uh, um, uh, the railway to travel about, manipulating the media, the PM at the height of Britain as a world power. Uh, Gladstone, uh, four times prime minister, uh, far more significant than Disraeli. Lloyd George, who created the modern prime minister uh, created the uh, uh, cabinet secretariat on 9th of December 1916, which added enormously to the power at the centre, not just uh, a very significant war leader, but a very significant peacetime uh, leader as well. Uh, Churchill, um, who um, was a great uh, statesman as a prime minister, didn't leave so much uh, if any, mark on the office, Attlee, the great Labour post-war prime minister who um, uh, created the building on the liberal uh, pre-war, pre-First World War uh, work, uh, the modern welfare state, uh, and on foreign secretary, NATO, the special relationship, um, independence for India. Uh, Thatcher, um, and and those are eight, um, and we can see they come every 30, 35 years or so, Um, and the question is, um, uh, will, as his successes, people laugh, people uh, say absolutely not, Um, it's very hard to see Johnson aside from one's political views about him, personal views about him and his morality, views about Brexit, but the fact is that he won, won a stonking landslide election victory, two, he took the country out of the EU, arguably the most important decision by British government. Um, obviously it was a referendum, but it was enacted by government and um, uh, and then overseeing the pandemic. Um, he's there at a significant time. Uh, and, uh, and open question, uh, in many ways, uh, as has been pointed out, if he wants, if his concern is to be remembered as an historic figure, uh, give up or die now. Um, uh, and then the second tier, Chatham, much greater uh, figure before he, uh, not as first thought as, uh, um, as a figure commanding the world's uh, stage, Britain's position in the world. Uh, Liverpool, um, uh, Gray oversaw the uh, Identity Reform Act and the Abolition of Slavery in 1833. Uh, but much of the pitch roading had been done by others. 
Disraeli, um, a very important figure to the Conservative Party, but as his major biographer, uh, Robert Blake said, uh, a great um, uh, uh, personality, but not a great prime minister. Uh, Asquith, so important before the uh, First World War, but so much of that work was carried out by Lloyd George. Uh, Baldwin, the interwar uh, figure, uh, 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 soothing the country, uh, soothing Labour into parliamentary democracy, seeing through the abdication, helping prepare the country uh, for the Second World War to the extent that he did. Macmillan, um, uh, uh, decolonization, but um, there for nearly seven years, didn't do that much. Uh, Wilson, what did he do? The major achievements of the 60s Wilson government, so much promise, so much need for decisive uh, agenda-changing action. Uh, the most significant events, apart from uh, not insignificant remotely, founding of the Open University were the liberal reforms, much associated liberalisation reforms with his Home Secretary, Roy Jenkins. Uh, Ted Heath, forgetting Britain into Europe, and so much of his other structural reforms to local government, industry, trade unions, swept away soon after uh, he left, and, and now even his tiring achievement of getting Britain into the EU uh, gone. Uh, Tony Blair uh, is for a Labour leader of a unified Labour movement. Uh, trade unions uh, are passive, um, very strong economy, very strong uh, election victories. What did he do? He largely squandered his first term. The constitutional reforms were very much the work of his legal mentor, Derry Irvin. Um, and then the noble failures, um, just to put them up, uh, 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 there they are. Just let me, I mean, Melbourne uh, simpering around Victoria when he could have been uh, getting on and attending to the needs of the country, um, uh, could have built on Gladstone's legacy. Anthony Eden has to be the biggest failure of all. Um, and uh, uh, taking Britain into a disastrous overseas adventure in Suez and then lying to Parliament. So, so now what explains the landmark? Um, why have Britain had so few uh, of these landmark prime ministers um, and individual agency? We look so much at, at agency, but in fact, many of the factors in explaining uh, who have been the landmarks and indeed who have been uh, that second tier are because of factors outside their individual qualities. Um, so, so, so you've got to be there for a long time. Look at the uh, longest serving, uh, Walpole and Pitt, the two longest serving, two landmark figures. Liverpool, I don't think, did enough uh, when he was prime minister, nor the bookend uh, peer at the end of the 19th century either for all his adulation from conservative historians. Uh, Gladstone, the fifth longest serving. North, uh, not a bad prime minister, good on economics, uh, oversaw uh, the departure of Britain, for, uh, the departure of the American colonists. Thatcher served longer than many think. Um, Palmerston uh, and then Asquith, these are the second tier prime ministers, are the, uh, the ones who were long serving uh, all the way down there. Uh, Ackley, uh, and then finishing on Lloyd George and Peel. So first thing, if you want to make a significant impact, you need to be there for at least one uh, whole administration of five years. It isn't true, as Blair said on these radio programmes, you need to be there for uh, 10 years. Um, you do if you don't 
get on with it. And he didn't get on with it in his first term. Secondly, um, to be there at a time of, of major events. I mean, look at the overlap there of the major events uh, in the 18th and 19th century and the major events in the 20, 20th century and 21st century indeed, uh, and those prime ministers. If you want to be a historic prime minister, be there at a time of historical significance. Very easy to be in the first, uh, very hard to be in the first tier uh, if you're not there at historic events, but you have to judge your historic events uh, rightly uh, and do the right things. Thirdly, you're not gonna have a cat's hope in hell if you don't have uh, a landslide uh, and a proper parliamentary um, majority behind you. Look at those landslides there to which one could add uh, 2000, um, 19 and um, the the Boris Johnson election and look at the uh, red means they are first tier the landmark PMs um, Henry Campbell Bannon capitalised on it by Asquith and Lloyd George um, uh, what did Wilson do with the 66 general election victory uh, did Blair do enough with 97 uh, and indeed 2001 so that's the third character um, uh, uh, characteristic. Then long apprenticeships to learn how to do the job. The ignorance of the job is a very significant factor. I mean, look at these, uh, the nine landmark PMs, only one, the second one there, uh, you'll see uh, was less than 20 years in Parliament. Two years, he was only 24. He came into being an MP uh, in his early 20s, became PM. Uh, the age of 24, therefore could only have had two years, but he learned a lot from his father, Chatham. Um, so he had a, a, a father as, as a patron and his mother, uh, Lady um, uh, 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 Chatham, was, was extraordinarily, uh, Hester Pitt, extraordinarily influential in, in all the way through until the last uh, years of his life when she died in uh, mentoring him. Long apprenticeships, absolutely essential. It is a... An astonishing fact, I think, that of including Johnson, the five prime ministers leading up to Johnson, including Johnson, had served in just three offices, three ministerial offices, the five before them, 23, the five before that, 41. That's an astonishing collapsing of ministerial experience. So many modern prime ministers come in without a clue, without a clue how to be uh, prime minister. Uh, and then having clear agendas is, is the fifth characteristic. Either that agenda is chosen for you by that great historic, the First World War, the Second World War, or you have to uh, come up and devise it. Gladstone's great agenda, uh, Lloyd George, um, Ackley uh, and Thatcher, um, uh, came up with a, an agenda which was not about burning injustices or a big society or a classless society or a, a third way um, in which the former director of the LSE was very significant. Uh, Anthony Giddens, Tony Giddens in devising that. I mean, th th these are paper thin. We're talking here about substantial agenda changes. And then uh, to be there at a time of a strong uh, economy is, is fundamental, fundamental for you um, as, as you go forward. Uh, so, so let's look there at, at the strong economies um, and how the landmark PMs have been there at a time uh, when the economy has been strong. Uh, if you don't have that, there won't be the money to do what you want and discontent will turn on you. 
on top of those structural factors that have helped explain uh, the major prime ministers are the personal qualities, moral seriousness, epitomized uh, by Gladstone. If you lack gravitas, you will not succeed. An iron will. Um, uh, there you have Pitt the Younger, despite his extraordinary uh, weaknesses. Statesman, um, Pitt, uh, that there is Peel, um, who was putting put country before party over the repeal of the corn uh, laws resulting in the Tories being out of power for over 25 years. An, an extraordinary appetite for hard work epitomized uh, by Thatcher and her four or five hours sleep uh, a night. Uh, to be uh, extraordinary communicators, to be able to teach the nation, to talk to the nation, to have very strong constitutions as Walpole did, to have even temperament. So you don't get histrionic, you don't say wild things about pal and high or whatever it is. Uh, you, you just got yourself under control. Uh, that's Clement Attlee. That relationship, women have been largely written out by political scientists um, uh, um, uh, and indeed by historians, uh, but the importance of that fundamental relationship. You can't, so much the criticism of Carrie Simmons, the fiancé of the current prime minister, is because of an ignorance of how important the spouse has been throughout history. And then it, to have a very strong team, you need to have at least uh, four very capable people. This is at this team from the left, Bevin, Bevan, Mike Bevan, next who created the welfare state, Herbert Morrison and Hugh Dalton. Massive figures all but Bevan uh, were there uh, during uh, the war, schooled in war. Uh, uh, that is, um, I'm, if, uh, if Lloyd George had died of the flu, um, uh, influenza plague uh, at, uh, in, in Manchester Town Hall in September 1918, as he nearly succumbed, Churchill might have taken over. It would have been a disaster. Thatcher issue taken over in uh, PM in 1970 rather than 1979. Timing is all important. Uh, Antonio, I've got exactly five minutes uh, left, according to my uh, timer, which means I can just go over the five improvements. There has been a, um, uh, the foreign secretary has declined in power, the uh, chancellor has risen, there's now an Ill, Ill balance, the PM has become involved increasingly in ill-advised overseas uh, uh, ventures, uh, Suez, um, uh, Iraq, um, uh, execution on Afghanistan, uh, Libya in 2011. Um, the, the PM has become enchanted by foreign policy, by foreign travel, by being pampered uh, abroad, far more interesting than the details of, uh, uh, of social security and, uh, and, uh, and pensions uh, or, or other domestic uh, gritty issues. Um, and the Chancellor has become more and more uh, significant so the first suggestion to make the PM's job possible again, to make uh, them far more effective. Every PM since 1945 has been rushed out of office, um, either because of an election victory um, uh, by their um, opponents or by illness or by, um, uh, by rivals stabbing them in the back. Uh, even uh, Wilson, the one exception in April 76, often cited is simply not true. He had early onset uh, Alzheimer's, he was drinking far too much. Even he uh, could not have continued. The state would not have supported him. So what do we need? We need to have a proper deputy P 
PM. Michael Gove is fulfilling some of that role at the moment, taking over many of the cabinet committees, many of the detailed work. Um, and we need the foreign secretary again to be re-empowered so that the foreign secretary is doing much of the oversight of, um, of the country's foreign positions. Secondly, we need number 10 to be not bigger, but much more high powered. Um, uh, officials um, uh, have been often uh, not uh, look at the trajectory of this government. What happens is incoming administrations trash the officials, think that they're loyal, oddly to their uh, predecessors, trash them, diminish them. And then as Boris Johnson has found out, actually, they really know what they're doing, which is now why he's relying on people like Dan uh, Rosenfield. Uh, uh, and throughout number 10, um, the, the officials guided also by really excellent um, uh, special advisors and experts in a whole range of areas. It needs to become, I don't think, Tony, that we need, we look at the two most effective post-war prime ministers, Attlee and Thatcher, they both had very small number 10s. You don't, it, it, it's a solution of second-rate people to think you need to have a big, not second-rate academics, second-rate PMs, to think you need a, a more powerful uh, number 10. Uh, this balance needs to be redressed. Um, Gordon Brown, for better or worse, stymied many, much of what uh, 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 Tony Blair wanted to do. Um, that needs to be redressed. There needs to be a new committee to balance the National Security Council, founded in 2011, which is the Economic Security Council, chaired by the PM, not by the Chancellor, who again can become what it says on the tin, first order of the Treasury rather than seventh order of the Treasury. Uh, number 10 needs to be much more professionalised. Um, uh, and it needs to be uh, far more inclusive, not just with women who've been largely uh, uh, absent um, in prime minister's history of the 55 prime ministers, uh, but also those of um, diverse backgrounds. That's Sam Jima, um, who uh, was the lowest tier parliamentary private secretary, not um, really a, a recognised member of number 10, and only for a year under David Cameron. Uh, and, and it needs to be far fuller of people who are going to, um, uh, one minute left, Tony, um, they're going to be far fuller of people who are, are offering challenging, divergent points of view, weak leaders, bring in people like them, their special advisors, people who got them to the top. It's such a different job governing to campaigning. The people who helped you to get to the top of the mountain are not the people you need on top of the mountain to govern. You need people who are going to be highly uh, offering you divergent points of view, challenging you all the time, weak people, like people around them. And then you're going to need to have people who are going to give them the time to think. The long-term problems for this country, social care, the environment, um, uh, uh, the future jobs, AI, uh, social care, uh, and much more, the position of Britain in the world, need to be thought through by the PM. PM after PM after PM will say, I didn't have time. Sorry, Chum, you were there. You should have made time to do the job, to think long term, rather than just reacting in a vain way to the next day's headlines over and out. Thank you, Anthony. Thank you very much indeed for a marvellous um brief but nevertheless colourful description of uh, an office that has evolved so much since Sir Robert Walpole effectively formed it. Um, just perhaps just for me to get a question to begin with. I mean, I, I take what I take your point of your 
prioritizing and the the success prime ministers have but i suppose would i be right in saying there was at least a case for harold wilson not because of things he himself did but because of the remarkable social change that occurred which his government empowered in the late 60s so many of the sort of social liberal freedoms that are seen as the norm now right across politics only came about because of his him empowering Roy Jenkins's reforms in 1967 and 68 surely that's had a profound effect on the UK today it has and, and we can't at the same time praise Attlee for the work of his um uh, big beasts and not recognize uh Wilson's role in in affirming um uh, Roy Jenkins and yet and yet uh Tony uh if you compare um uh, uh, Wilson to, to Johnson and the work that Johnson was doing on uh, race relations. I don't think that the reforms went nearly far enough, um, uh, making Britain um, uh, the kind of inclusive, uh, socially just country that it could and should have been. I think on the economic front, he didn't modernise Britain. He talked a lot. Everyone remembers the white heat of technology, but no one can really remember what he did about it. Uh, and I think Britain's position in the world, yes, he kept Britain out of the Vietnam War, a good thing. Um, he tried to get Britain into the EU, but he didn't truly reconsider Britain's position uh, uh, with an economically affordable position in the world. Uh, he did... Uh, east of Suez, but he could have done. Uh, Prime Minister, uh, uh, like um, Baldwin in the interwar period, he epitomised an area. He got from Baldwin hype that he loved to puff, even though we know that in private he smoked cigars, but that was far too unproletarian for, for, for him to, to, to be seen smoking cigars in public. Um, so, yeah, a second-rate, second-order Prime Minister is how I see it. I, that's not how okay. Ben Pinlock sees it. Yeah, yeah, sure. And slightly in defence of uh, Anthony Eden, uh, who regularly comes last, and I think has in your uh, analysis in terms of least successful prime minister. But was he not simply, and I know this has to be included in the analysis, was actually the wrong person in the wrong place at the wrong time, absolutely picked up a moment in time where Britain fe didn't understand its developing role in the world and eden uh, buoyed perhaps and this was a mistake by a belief in britain continuing to be a global power took on um nasa in a way and and tried to win back uh, take back the canal the Suez canal but in a way that wasn't entirely his fault that any almost any prime minister would have done that wouldn't they yes yes and that's the cruelty um, uh, of uh, the job and why timing is so important and, and the point about luck, uh, Tony. I mean, that's just another really uh, uh, sharp uh, uh, question. And of course, he was who he was. Knowing who he was, he was bound to respond to the Egyptian leader, Nasser, in a pugilistic uh, way and to bring in uh, the European allies and to try to make it a a joint uh, operation, but to hide it. Um, that was who he was, and yet it was catastrophic. And he also didn't do the domestic stuff, and there were concerns about his lack of the smack of firm government before, as you know, before the nationalisation on 26th of uh, July 1956. And actually, was he that good before the war when he resigned over appeasement and indeed during the war? Uh, to what extent was he 
genuinely uh, uh, steering foreign policy. Bevin was a far more impressive uh, foreign secretary. Um, uh, Eden's premier, uh, foreign secretaryship bookended Bevin. It's tough, you know, yeah, if sure. he'd become PM in 1951. But, you know, if Brown had become PM as he wanted in 1997, Brown could well have done, achieved far more. He was a far more serious policy-driven Labour through and through figure um, than Tony Blair. Maybe he could have uh, uh, done much more. Um, maybe Theresa May should take taken over in 2010. It wouldn't have been such a... Well, she was unlucky as well. I mean, rather like Eden, she was, again, the wrong person, arguably the wrong person at the wrong place. Uh, and almost any prime minister would have suffered. I mean, one final question from me, and I've got some questions that have come in from our audience. Um, famously, UK government is not is centralised within the centre. So we have a pyramid of power that leads into this extraordinary little building in Downing Street. Um where whenever you go into it, you get the sort of sense that it's, uh, you know, power all ends up there. And of course, the UK, certainly England within the UK, is a very centralised country by comparison with, say, Germany or America or even France these days. So has the office of prime minister almost become uh impossible by virtue of your being almost like mayor of england if you, you've ended up worrying about every bedpan in every hospital every tree that's cut down to build any railway or road it all leads back to one person as you argue in the book making the job almost entire almost impossible for one person to do the expectations, there's such a mismatch. That's exactly, Tony, why we need an LSE commission on the future <laughs> of the prime ministership. Uh, we're better, uh, nowhere better in the country than having that, given the deep roots of LSE's involvement in the history of the premiership and leadership. Um, but, you know, it is incredible that it is a unitary country, as you say. That is, all other things being equal, you'd expect the prime minister to have more ability to have traction, to have an elected, sorry, not an elected head of state, a hereditary head of state rather than elected head of state puts more power to the PM, to have uh, the voting system that we have again, um, which more usually throws up uh, uh, governments without a coalition, again, more power in the PM, plus also uh, an unwritten constitution, meaning the PM can redefine, reinterpret the office with much greater freedom. All those are four powerful factors. That means it's reasonable to expect more from the PM. OK, well, thank you for that. Now, we've got some questions which I'm going to uh, go through. The first one, which is, picks up something you said at the beginning, Anthony. It's from Isabel Lai. I hope I pronounced your second name correctly. Um, is the office of PM becoming more presidential over time? Now, you said bunk, but, I, but we know that there's a sort of ebbing and flowing, isn't there, in the, in the presidentialness or otherwise. And, and uh, one might argue, let me just put it to you, that you know, the 24-hour the media cycle, uh, the uh, uh, spending two and a half million pounds on building... Um, uh, a West Wing style room for um, your press secretary or not, as the case may be, to do press conferences is um, evidence that 
at least there's ebbing and flowing, whatever the long-term trend is. Is that true? That Attlee was more of a chairman, a chair. Um, Blair was more of a sort of presidential figure. Discuss. Uh, Isabel, everything goes in waves um, in human affairs. So, so of course, um, the point there about the bunk is that it isn't true that there's been a long-term continuity from an enfeebled first person accumulating all these powers and becoming presidential now. You're certainly right, Isabel. It certainly is uh, uh, flowing. And there's also a difference between the assumption of presidential uh, uh, authority, which to an extent is inevitable as the um, power of the monarch has slowly declined, even though it wasn't that great in 1721, and we can exaggerate the lack of of the monarchy today, uh, certainly lack of authority in the monarchy today. But yeah, I certainly think there is, uh, as you and Tony is also suggesting, an ebb and flow and powerful uh, at one. So Labour's Callaghan and then Thatcher down to Major, up to Blair, down to Brown, up-ish to, to Cameron, down to May, up to-ish uh, to, to Boris Johnson. Yeah, fair point. Yeah, and I mean, one of the intriguing, I'm just, you, you mentioned the monarch, I mean, one of the intriguing, many intriguing, many, many intriguing sections in the book uh, points to the fact that we know absolutely nothing about Elizabeth II's view about almost anything to do with the, not the personalities, politics and so on, and that we're going to have to wait for years into the future to see the papers to work out what uh, the Queen thinks about the individuals and their policies. That's a fair point, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, but who worries about the truth when you've got the crown? Um, <laughs> and you've got Peter Morgan, um, who I'm sure has seen um, uh, at the weekly audience that started under George VI in the war with uh, Churchill, that weekly uh, meeting. There are not um, uh, records kept, but I'm sure Peter Morgan, who wrote The Crown and the audience, um, ha has been well briefed uh, by the, the monarch and all the prime ministers. So he really knows because he writes with such conviction uh, in The Crown uh, and people apparently believe that is the truth. As, and however, Tony says, we actually do not know. In fact, the current prime minister did reveal a tiny amount, didn't he, when he came back from his first audience, which you quote in the book. Now, uh, let's have a question from uh, Liam Selsby, who is uh, uh, a British government student, if I can um, say that proudly. Um, now, in the book, you were quite critical of... Um, May's character in the book May at 10 actually this is an, an earlier book um, do you think looking at Boris Johnson today that he shares similar characteristics to May that will end his premiership in disaster or do you think historians will look back favorably uh, look back on him favorably so we're going to get some uh, preemptive history here uh, Liam you're studying um, politics and government in the best in the country's best uh, government department at LSE. Uh, good on you. I think that May had so many qualities that we're going through that list, but you need to have that flexibility um, that she didn't have. She was given just one job, uh, which was to get uh, Britain out of the EU, um, whatever we think of that. That was her task. You would think, wouldn't you, that she'd consult the people who knew about the EU, uh, who knew about how to do it, uh, but she didn't. 
She didn't. She relied on a special advisor and a very close team. So even her cabinet didn't know what she was doing. And having devised an impossible idea for getting Britain out when it didn't work, she then was all over the place. So I think she had incredible qualities, incredible human qualities. And she was somebody of very high moral uh, gravitas and, and, and that sense of, I pointed out with Gladstone, of having that moral seriousness. Absolutely. But she didn't have that quality, the flexibility. Um, interesting, by the way, Liam, how extroverts follow introverts. Uh, so, so Blair extrovert, uh, Brown introvert, Cameron extrovert, um, May very, very introverted, uh, uh, and, and uh, uh, Boris Johnson. And I just don't know the answer to what history is going to say about him um, and whether he's going to be undone by what's happening at the moment in Northern Ireland with uh, Arlene Foster going is, is, you know, that's a ticking bomb. Scotland's a ticking bomb, uh, levelling up the North. Can he do that? Will there be a third wave? The, the immense uh, spend on necessary spend on the epidemic. Can he sort out social care? Is the EU, everyone's trashed it, and uh, but is the EU actually going to take off? Um, what about the, the, the fishermen? Will there be many others who feel like the fish, uh, the fish, fisher, uh, the fi fi fishermen and fisherwomen now um, that feel betrayed? Will that happen? Will that spread to other sectors of the economy? Who knows? I don't know. But maybe you do, Liam. I, I don't know. OK, let's do one or two slightly, this is my fault, the shorter and sharper ones to get through more questions by the hour. Um, Robert Farquharson, was Wellington's history changing legacy greater as a soldier or as a politician? Uh, Robert, um, as you know from your own uh, love of uh, Wellington, uh, it clearly was much bigger as a soldier because he was there. I mean, is he the greatest military leader of the entire 300-year period? Almost definitely, uh, yes. Um, but as a prime minister, he wasn't that bad. Catholic emancipation uh, was um, uh, an, an enlightened uh, move. Um, he did uh, he did show flexibility. So I think he was a much better prime minister. People say great, um, a, a great war leader, um, a soldier, but. Uh, Poor politician. I think he's a better politician, Prime Minister, than many allowed, in brief. And certainly the British military seem to have a better sense of their place in the democratic system than some other European countries today. Uh, Doris Parry says, if Scotland and or Wales go independent, what will happen to the PM's office? So if Scotland and or uh, Wales go well, independent. Well, uh, the PM uh, will go. Great question uh the pm will not survive i mean cameron wouldn't survive if the september 2014 uh referendum had gone against him is it you know could have done one or two points uh he wouldn't have survived it uh, would have been the worst uh event for a pm since uh north as mentioned earlier lost uh the 13 colonies um in uh north america um and scotland also so the pm will definitely go um uh, the, the pm would have gone if the First World War had been lost, the monarchy reform in the First World War had been lost. I mean, the reason that, that, that we've still got a PM is because we had our great shocks in the 17th century of a civil war uh, and revolution. We didn't have them like all these other powers in Europe and North America who, who've had civil wars and uh, revolutions since. We've been remarkably stable in, in uh, three uh, centuries. So um, 
I think that uh, it would be utterly different. And, and I think it would probably lead to uh, a much more uh, federal uh, uh, Britain with far more powers in the northeast and northwest. Uh, I think the case for stopping that happening would, would, uh, it would just be impossible to stop that momentum. Okay. Arguably, time for a constitutional review of the UK, but the academics always say that. Now, Rishi by LSE. Again, Rishi Madlani, uh, who's an LSE alum, uh, who adapted best to tech change? Do you think the current era of social media has changed the role forever? And you did talk a little bit about this. So, um, I, I think, uh, so very quickly there, Tony, I think Gladstone did, because look, he was born before the, came into power before the railway, but then master of, of, of managing the railway, of picking up the telephone, not quite telephones like that, but, you know, uh, ones like uh, uh, like this, the electric light bulb, uh, typewriters, I didn't mention, I don't think I mentioned uh, there. So I think he was the most flexible adapter uh, extraordinary person um, and uh, I think technology is constantly I think it gets, gets back a little bit to uh, was it Isabel's question about about waves um, I, th I think uh, that, that technology will always be changing the PM um, and social media looks like uh, the biggest of all but that's only because it's the current one you that's wait 25 years I must say, as someone with family in North Wales, I've always been grateful to Gladstone for the quality of the rail service to Chester. Um, uh, Andrew Lone, have we seen the end of proper cabinet government or does a prime minister need to return to that model of more distributed power to achieve greatness? I don't think we've had Andrew cabinet government uh, since Callaghan uh, properly. Um, Callaghan, the last... PM to 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 IMF crisis, nineteen seventy six. Now thirty five years ago, um, forty five years ago, uh, indeed. Uh, uh, since then, Thatcher depleted cabinet uh, and cabinet committees. Wanted to do more and more with uh, ministers on her own process. Um, Major got cabinet back a bit. Blair blasted cabinet. Brown tried to get cabinet government back and then found he couldn't. Uh, master it and, and, and went back into taking decisions on his own. I think um, talk about cabinet government is much exaggerated. And I think we'd be a better country if we had a rational cabinet uh, again. Um, Another subject for the, the great review of the UK constitutional settlement. And then uh, we're running up to two o'clock. Um, uh, a question precisely provoked by a, a, a discussion you have in the book alvin carpio says when do you predict the uk will have its first pm who is a person of color now it's a difficult thing to predict like that but if you can just have a discussion about you make the point in the book about the lack of diversity in downing street uh, in fact the conservatives have managed to have two female prime ministers which is rather more than uh, the labor party's managed um what do you think about, uh, is Britain going to have, do we think, um, a prime minister of colour within the foreseeable future? Uh, Alvin, uh, definitely. And the clear front runner for that, uh, if um, the country wants, an in, if the Conservative Party wants an insider, it will be Rishi Sunak. Uh, and if they want to go for somebody who's been out of all of this, uh, Sajid Javid, um, Sunak's predecessor, 
as chancellor, they want an outsider to, to, who's fresh, who's not tainted by the decisions. So I think that, that if COVID has seemed to have gone badly, uh, this could happen. There's at least a 50-50 chance there'll be a new uh, PM. And I think it will be somebody of colour, as you say. Um, um, uh, that it's very likely, very very likely that that will be, and I think a very good thing for the country too, um, uh, I think um, they're very likely to be that, and I think it might well happen um, it, within two years. I mean, Boris Johnson, had, if he can get through all of this, I mean, John Lewis and the flat uh, are trivial compared to uh, COVID and the economy and the cohesion of the country and Britain's place in the world. If he can get through all of that, then I, th I think that will be pushed down the line, but sooner or later, and probably sooner rather than later, Alvin. Can I give you one, one for one sentence so we finish on time? Julian Lawford asks, what are the greatest successes and drawbacks of the UK role of prime minister as compared with heads of government in similar countries? I know it's a nasty one to get you to do in five seconds, but go for it. You can do it. I know you can do it. It's absolutely uh, I impossible, but I think... As Churchill showed in the Second World War and Lloyd George in the First World War, the unwritten constitution means that they can do extraordinary things at the centre of government uh, to create that military civilian uh, complex at the very heart to provide a unified command centre, which countries with more mature um, constitutions would not have allowed heads, heads of government abroad. Okay, that makes sense i mean i think what we've learned is um as we come to the end of the event that um that the flexibility of the office like the flexibility of so much of the uk's constitutional arrangements um can often be a strength it's not always a strength but it can be a strength uh and i'd just like to um thank uh anthony selden sir anthony selden for sharing uh the contents of, or parts of the contents of his excellent book the impossible office uh, those of you who want to hear more can do so on radio four next week where a series uh, on the issue is being uh, repeated and my only thought to end other than to thank uh, anthony and the team uh, kirsty and matthew again is there's probably a book to be written about leaders of the opposition in britain as well uh, an important role much under discussed so anyway thank you very much for joining us do join us again soon and thank you again once again, Anthony, for your wise words this afternoon.